Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As we get to the end of the year, we always look back at who and what were the most important things that happened. And 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, who rose to prominence this year for her passionate pleas for governments to take action on climate change, has been named the 2019 Time Person of the Year. The teen has become a leading face of a movement. She's inspired millions of young people. She spoke before the United Nations and had meetings with numerous heads of state, including the Pope. For more on this, we spoke to Charlotte Alter, national correspondent for Time. Person of the Year is not necessarily an honor or an accolade or a prize, even though it's often taken that way. It's meant to be a demonstration of the person or people who've had the greatest impact on the news of the world for good or for ill. So if you notice in past years, we've highlighted world leaders who may not necessarily be on the right side of history, but that year they were absolutely the most influential person in the world. So um, the process starts with a big meeting and we all get to get the whole staff gets together and talks about who we think the pick should be. And then there's a long reporting process where different reporters go off on different projects and try to report out different options. And this year, ultimately, Greta herself is the person of the year because it was very clear that she was the most compelling voice on the most important issue facing the planet. And we haven't done a person of the year about climate in more than 30 years since we did one about planet Earth. So now it seems like a really good time to do one. I mean, it's interesting that you say that it is not an honor. I think a lot of people do kind of take it that way just because yeah. they're getting so much recognition, I guess. Other people that were in the running were Speaker Nancy Pelosi, President Trump, the Ukraine whistleblower, the Hong Kong protesters. And every year you name somebody and there's obviously the detractors. There's people that say, well, somebody else deserves it much more. Uh, somebody who's made maybe a bigger impact. She is only 16 years old. So I know mm -hmm. that there's a lot of that type of criticism that comes with it. That's one of the things that's so great about person of the year is that it sparks these conversations that gets people talking among their friends and among their peers and online about who was influential this year and why. And we're happy to be starting a conversation and maybe not everyone agrees with our choice and that's okay. Certainly Pelosi and the whistleblower and many of the other options that have been speculated have all been influential in their own right. For Greta Thunberg, you know, this, this particular choice reflects not only the importance of climate change to everybody on the planet, not just in the United States, because, you know, we are a global brand, but also a rising tide of youth anger around the world about issues from climate change to income inequality to authoritarianism. And there are young people like Greta all over the world who are beginning to sort of realize that they might be inheriting a planet that is in much worse shape than their parents did. And so in many ways, our story is not really about just this one teenage girl, but about young people across the world. And the rise of Greta has happened so quickly. She really began this global movement when she started skipping school in August of 2018, not very long at all. Tell us how Greta started in climate activism. There was uh, something she saw at school and it threw her into a deep depression 
And it really was this activism and starting these protests back at home that lifted her out of it. Greta learned about climate change in school in the way that a lot of kids do. Her teacher showed them a video that included information about plastic in the oceans and starving polar bears. And her classmates were able to kind of just sort of watch the video, learn the material, and then sort of move on to what was next, recess or math or whatever class they had next. And Greta was unable to sort of shake what she had seen. And later she was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which helps explain why she was not able to compartmentalize this new information about our dying planet. But she sunk into a deep, deep depression when she was only about 11 years old and she stopped eating almost entirely. She stopped speaking. She stopped going to school. She was so thin that she had to be hospitalized and both of her parents had to take time off work in order to care for her. She was in a deep, dark sadness about the state of the planet and about the fact that she felt like world leaders weren't doing anything to solve this problem. And actually, when you meet Greta, she's 16 years old, but she looks more like she's 12. And that's because during that period of time, she ate so little that She was actually malnourished and it stunted her growth. So what happened was her parents tried to sort of reassure her in the way that a lot of parents do saying, you know, oh, it's going to be okay and don't worry so much. And then the more they read about it, the more they realized that actually she was right to be as concerned as she was. And so then they started changing a lot of their behavior. They stopped flying. They stopped eating meat mostly, although her younger sister still occasionally eats meat. And they really changed a lot of their habits. And that helped her heal a little bit, seeing that she was having some impact on at least how her family was living more sustainably. And then she entered a writing contest and her essay about climate change was was published in the newspaper and some activists contacted her and they talked about how they could be most effective. And she had read about the Parkland kids who had gone on strike to demand action on gun violence. And so she suggested that they do that. And the other activists ultimately kind of went in a different direction. So Greta decided to start the school strike by herself. And that was when she was able to really pull herself out of her depression because she felt like she was actually doing something to address the thing that had made her depressed in the first place. And the strike started off as just her. Then it was two people. Then it was more people. And it kept multiplying. Mm -hmm. And then there was thousands of people. And it really morphed into this thing, Fridays for the Future, because she couldn't stay out of school the entire time. So she was just doing it on Fridays, protesting, Mm -hmm. trying to get her government to get in line with the Paris Climate Accord. And Greta, I mean, she is just a child. She's 16 years old. She's not a scientist, a celebrity, although she might be coming one, you know, inadvertently here. But she grew to be such a voice in taking action on climate change. She's inspired tons of young people to also take action. People are saying, you know, I want to be just like her. Talk to us about the impact that she's made on the climate discussion. She started this strike, as you said, all alone in August of 2018. By the end of the year, there were a couple thousand people joining her. And by early 2019, there were thousands marching across Europe. And by September, when Greta came to the U.S. for the U.N. General Assembly, on September 20th, there were 4 million people across the planet who went on strike to demand action on climate change. So to go from being all by yourself to inspiring 4 million people to join you. To make that shift in 13 months, that is a significant movement and a significant show of real influence 
already, particularly in Europe, you're seeing government changing their behavior and you're also seeing people begin to change their behavior because of her. She's starting this movement that is really changing the way people exist in the world and also changing the way people expect their governments to address this problem. Charlotte Alter, National Correspondent for Time, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Looking back to the word of the year, Merriam-Webster has declared that they, T-H-E-Y, is the word of 2019. Lookups for they increased 313% in 2019 over the previous year. And while it's a very common word, more recently, they has been used to refer to one person whose gender identity is non-binary. Other words that made the list for the top of 2019 include quid pro quo, crawdad, and tergiversation. To talk about all this, we spoke to Emily Brewster, senior editor at Merriam-Webster. We choose our word of the year based on data. It is all data-driven. It is determined by what words are frequently looked up by users at merriam And they was looked up 313% more in 2019 than it had been looked up in 2018. And it also had a number of significant spikes in lookups over the course of the year. Every time people go to the Merriam-Webster site to look up new words, it often coincides with news items, something going viral, maybe a story, you know, and it has a word in there that people really don't recognize. So they need to know what the meaning of it is. They is such a simple word that we've used for so long now. Give us the context behind this word and why it made the list. They is one of the most common words in the English language. It's a pronoun that we use all the time. Most of the time, we use it to refer to more than one person or more than one thing. I saw them there, the books, they are on the table. But in recent years, they has expanded in its use. And we recently, in September actually, entered a new sense of the word they, with the meaning used to refer to a single person whose gender identity is non-binary. Now, the spikes that we measured that made us determine that this would be our word of the year, we only looked at the spikes before that September announcement because that created buzz in and of itself. And it's clear from our data that people are turning to the dictionary to, in all likelihood, really look at this particular use of they, whether they're hearing it and they want to know if it's fully established or not, or they are wondering exactly how to use it. The pronoun they typically refers to more than one person or thing. So this use where it's used to refer to one person, it can be counterintuitive to people. You guys have a bunch of other top words from the year. Let's run through some of those because some of them are pretty fun. And obviously a lot of them have to do with political items. As we mentioned, when something happens in the news and a word is awkward or we don't know what it is, people go look it up. Quid pro quo. A lot of people in the news media were having a hard time saying that, Uh, you know, can you say that 10 times fast? It'd probably be pretty tough, but also people don't really know what that means. It's not a very commonly used term a technical legal term, and it means something given or received for something else, but it's almost always used in legal context now. Another political one is impeach. That was uh, a 129% increase in lookups. That's right. And again, in the news, probably today, I actually didn't check to see if there were spikes, but I would suspect there were. And that word means to charge with a crime or misdemeanor, specifically to charge a public official before a competent tribunal with misconduct in office. So that word increased 129% over last year, and it had a number of significant spikes. Another word that was kind of fun is crawdad. Now, I like to eat these things. I usually just call them crawfish, but it means the same thing, right? Crawdad is a regional term. It's used mostly west of the Appalachians, but it refers exactly to the same thing as crawfish or crayfish. Do we know when that spike happened? Like, why were people looking up that word? That word spiked in March. 
when the first-time novelist Delia Owens was interviewed on CBS Sunday Morning because her book, Where the Crawdad Sings, was at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Okay. (laughs) An interesting word, clemency. This one spiked 9,900% in January. Why did this get a big spike? This word spiked because the governor of Tennessee had granted clemency to Centoya Brown, a woman who was convicted of murdering a man. That murder occurred when she was a 16-year-old victim of sex trafficking. And so clemency spiked in January when the governor of Tennessee granted her clemency. One of these other words here I wanted to throw in there. Now, I can't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Tergiversation? Uh, tell yes. us about that word <laughs> and why that one spiked. <laughs> Tergiversation, which is quite a mouthful, sparked 39,000% in January. Now, that tells you that nobody is ever really looking up tergiversation, right? If it's going to spike that much, it's because a word that people do not use or encounter very often. But the word was used by George Will in a Washington Post article. He used the word to reference Lindsey Graham's evasion of straightforward action or clear-cut statement, to quote the definition. Uh, It's just a fun look back at where these words end up spiking, why they spike. And and then, yeah, now we have the word of the year, they, for 2019. Emily Brewster, senior editor and lexicographer at Merriam-Webster. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Finally for this week, American factories are starting to demand a white-collar education for blue-collar work. Within three years, U.S. manufacturing workers with college degrees will outnumber those without. The shift toward automation and efficiency has opened the door to more women and reduced the prospects for lower-skilled workers. For more on the world of manufacturing, we spoke to Austin Hufford. He's a reporter at The Wall Street Journal. As manufacturing companies here in the States invest in their facilities, they're basically removing a lot of the rote physical work and instead need people who can operate the machines, program the machines and design their products. And so what that means is that U.S. manufacturing is increasingly becoming a highly educated, highly skilled workforce. A lot of these manufacturing jobs that require the most complex skills, something like an industrial engineer, those things grew by 10 percent while some of the other jobs were growing a lot less. Tell us a little bit about how it's all changing, though, because when you hear people talk about we need more manufacturing jobs, we need to get this uh, all these people back to work. Well, it's just not the same anymore, and it's not as easy as revitalizing the manufacturing industry. The people need to have the proper education now to be in there. You hear politicians and policymakers talking about this idea of bringing back factories to the states again. And if that even happens, it means more jobs for the people who are already highly educated. It's unclear if if someone who is a high school dropout or just has a high school degree, where they could fit in sort of this newer economy. Maybe that means taking four months manufacturing training courses or doing some sort of associate's degree, but clearly uh, more education is needed. How is the manufacturing industry doing as a whole? Are we still continually adding new jobs there or are we still kind of facing some competition from other places, other countries, things like that? There is still a ton of competition and growing competition around the world and especially in in lower income countries like China and even Mexico. But since the recession, there has been a lot of growth in manufacturing jobs. So basically, there's been more than a million manufacturing jobs added, but we are still a third below the peak of manufacturing of 20 million in the 1970s. One of the companies that you profiled in your article, Pioneer Service, Inc., they're a machine shop in Chicago, 
And they used to make a bunch of other stuff. The owner saw kind of what was changing. They weren't able to really pay the bills with what they were making and as things were changing. And they started making more complex parts for cars. But with that came the need for new machines, new technology. So tell us that story and tell us how it impacted the workers there because they had a tough time transitioning over. Pioneer Service has invested more than $6 million in new machines, new software, and training for their employees. I walked into the facility a few months ago, and it's clean and quiet, and you have one employee operating multiple machines. Probably a decade ago, things would have been very different. These machines would have been having oil everywhere. It would have been much dirtier. You would have had probably at least one worker, if not more, operating each machine. They had hammers and big wrenches, and it was just a much more physical job. But the company's owner and and the workers tell me that the transition was not easy for the workers. Only a handful of the production workers remain. They said it was really hard for them to learn going from a a very hands-on, physical, almost artisanal job to one where you're using a touchscreen and entering advanced controls into these machines. And most of those workers ended up leaving during the transition. I think these machines now can make one complex part every six minutes compared to 45 minutes of work that it used to take to produce like a single part. So, I mean, for the company... That's great. You have so much more output, but on the worker, it demands so much more of you in a different way. Like we've been saying, it's not that manual labor, but you need to punch in these codes. And a lot of those workers that she had had difficulty that you said they're not even there anymore, right? I spoke to a man who had been there for a very long time, more than a decade, and now he's working in construction. He just said that he couldn't keep the numbers straight in his head and that it was difficult learning how to work with these machines. And he tried and he took different classes that the company offered, but he just wasn't able to make the transition. He says he's happy now and that he enjoys having a change of pace after being in manufacturing for his entire career. But you also have to wonder, what's the future for workers like him? Are they all just going to be construction workers or are they going to have even lower class jobs like you know, working at a fast food joint or something? And that was like my last point here. You know, this is kind of a cautionary tale for both sides of the equation. For people that are going to school, it just proves you still need to get a degree. You still need to go as far as you can because then you can work on these machines. You can code these types of factories and whatnot. On the flip side, for somebody that maybe is not as adept in school, you can't rely on these manufacturing jobs anymore because they're increasingly giving way to automation and robots and technology. Exactly. And and I guess one thing I would keep in mind is that deciding the types of skills that you're going to learn is really important. These manufacturing workers aren't hiring English majors from Ivy League schools. They're hiring people who know how to weld, who know how to operate, you have CNC degrees. In my understanding is that if you are choosing a career or a degree now, just be very careful with what you're choosing because there are some skills that you take class for a year, pay a few thousand dollars, and you'll come out with a great job that's very unlikely to be replaced in the short term. But there's other jobs where you might spend a lot of money and and go to a big college and there's maybe relatively fewer jobs available for you, even if you do have that degree. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. (laughs) 